Attacker was given one year on probation. Milwaukee police say he shot at his ex-girlfriend while their kids were inside the car. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. And we were outside, it's dark, we're right there on the water. It's really a, a perfect scene, except for we're arguing. And um, he backhanded me across the face. It was not anything like what I was used to. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. This is a story of one of those victims. The year was 1993, and Janice Wells of North Alabama was just 14 years old. Now, at the age I am looking back on it, I would say that he was a pedophile. He was 39 when we got married. Um, and so it was a lot of it was control. She was invited by a family friend to go on a fishing trip. This is where her story begins. Um, I was raised in North Alabama, Oxford, uh, close to um, Fort McClellan. Mm -hmm. So we had family in South Carolina. That's where my parents had lived for several years before Alabama. So we were visiting my uncle uh, on a family vacation. I was 14 and uh, we visited my uncle. A friend of his was there and uh, a friend of the family, he was safe. You know, nobody thought anything about it. And so he said, hey, why don't I take uh, Jan, everybody calls me Jana, my family. Why don't I take Jana shrimping, teach her something new. This is, you know, this is uh, safe. Some other ladies will be there. And that was the start of the grooming process. I was 14 years old. He was, I think, 37. So you at that time, on a trip? Um, while we were on vacation. Okay. So um, I spent one evening, and uh, he made up an excuse. We stayed too long on the island, so I ended up having to spend the night. Uh, and then he spent the next year corresponding through letters. I was in Alabama. He was in South Carolina. So we would write through a friend of mine's house so my dad didn't find out. And I was convinced this was the, the man for me. This was the love of my life. I was 15 years old by then, and you know you couldn't tell me anything because oh, yeah, I you were young and impressionable. I knew everything about life at that point. So, um, when I was still 15, I decided that I wanted to leave home. Um, I came from a good family. My dad raised me. Um, we didn't struggle through anything. He, I was on the end of being spoiled, uh, but I thought this man was just everything that I wanted for the rest of my life. So I got a bus ticket and drove 15 hours, rode 15 hours, I didn't have a driver's license, to uh, go meet him. Welcome you to Graham, my name is Dumpy, your driver all the way to Atlanta, Georgia. This bus will be making a stop in Chattanooga, Dalton, Marietta, and Atlanta. And so I, this was before cell phones. So I called my dad after three weeks and I said, um, I'm here with Shorty, was what everybody called him, and we want to get married. And I was calling from a payphone, and my dad flipped out and said, this is not happening. Where are you at? I'm coming to get you. And so I said, well, I'll call you later. And I hung up the phone. And I waited three more weeks, and I called him back. And then he said, where are you at? Let me make sure you're safe, and I'll come sign for you to get married. So he would rather know where I was at than I was okay and gave me what I wanted, pretty much. So I turned 16 in July, and we got married in August 5th of 1995. Hmm. 
that's okay. kind of where everything started. <laughs> so that's where it started. So, yes. so after getting married, what was life like once you got married? The first couple months, um, life was great. I felt very grown up. I felt mature and I had made the right decision. All his friends were his age, so they were close to 40 or maybe above 40. None of his friends accepted me. Their kids were older than I was. And that was the only problem is I was very much isolated there. Um, I was in South Carolina and my parents were still in Alabama at that time. So there was nothing bad for the first couple months. It was very much a honeymoon stage. About three months later, probably October, we went to an oyster roast. And this is on the islands. Um, we lived on a boat. Uh, it was all just very exotic, you know, nothing like uh, Alabama. So uh, we went to an oyster roast and all his friends were there and um, everyone was drinking. He was a heavy drinker uh, and I had not been exposed to that growing up. So um, his friends decided to include me for whatever their reasoning was and so fed me alcohol all evening. And I can't really remember what we got into an argument about, but I'm sure it was the drinking. Uh, and we were outside. It's dark. We're right there on the water. It's really a, a perfect scene, except for we're arguing. And um, he backhanded me across the face. And that was the first time I had ever, uh, my parents didn't whip me growing up. I had never had corporal punishment. It was not anything like what I was used to. Uh, there was music playing, and I kind of looked, and there's 20 or 30 people out around in the yard or around the fire. And um, everybody kind of looked, but nobody said anything. And I thought, surely somebody is going to save me. You know, someone is going to take up for me. And it seemed like forever, but it was probably 30 seconds that everything paused. And then it just went back to normal. So, um... Now, what was, what did you do at that point? I didn't do anything at that point. I didn't really know what to do. So, when no one spoke up for me, I just went along with it. I said, okay. I didn't make a scene. Um, and the rest of the night, like I say, I had been drinking a lot. So... The rest of the night was just, I think we left shortly thereafter. Um, I didn't fuss about it. We, were, we went to the marina where we were staying at. Um, the next day, I called one person that I trusted, and I said, I need to talk to you. So um, I think it was a couple days before they came to South Carolina, and I said, uh, he hit me. And so she said, if you're going to leave, leave right now, go pack your stuff, uh, we'll take you we'll take you back to Alabama no problem but if you don't leave don't ever talk about it again mm. and I thought it was a valid choice you know I didn't know that that wasn't the correct answer at that time and I thought you know if I go back home I was going to be in 11th grade uh, everyone that had said oh I told you so she'll come back you know um, would be right and I would go back to being a kid and having a curfew um, I wasn't allowed to date until I turned 16, so when I left home to get married, I had never been on a date before. Um, so I just didn't want to, you know, I made a child's choice. I didn't want to go back to that. That's what you were. You were a child. Right. So, but I didn't realize it at the time, you know, but, but I stayed. And so I did exactly what she suggested. I never talked about it again until I left my husband, and that was in 2000. So you stayed silent from, from this point on. And so, so so what happened, that was the first time. So mm -hmm. it happened again, obviously. It did. It was a slow progression. I won't say that it immediately 
uh, went to the worst, it was maybe pressure on the back of the neck. Um, I could count on probably two hands the times that he hit me in the face after that first time because he didn't want it to show anywhere. Um, he would bruise me maybe on the back of the neck, on my side, on my legs. Uh, there's several places that you can hurt someone without it showing up to other people. Was there any verbal, um, uh, I guess, you know, you have so many levels of, 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 of right. um, domestic violence. So was there, you know, like, was there any demeaning? It was, but it was more controlling. Um, now, at the age I am looking back on it, I would say that he was a pedophile. I was 16. He was 26 years older than me. He was 39 when we got married. Um, and so it was a lot of it was control. Everything that I did, uh, like I said, we lived on the marina, so you would have to go up from the boat to they had the showers there and the laundry and all. Um, so anytime I would leave off the boat, I would have to ask, hey, do you mind if I go up here? And that just became a way of life. I didn't really realize that uh, it was abuse. So that's just, that's just how we lived. If um, I needed to buy clothes for something, I definitely would not buy them without his approval for it. Um, one time, I lost a decent bit of weight. I've always been a little heavy set, and so I had lost about 50 pounds. And I went without him to the store to get some clothes and to surprise him. I was very, you know, and nothing, nothing crazy, insane, but um, he was furious. It, you know, it makes you look like a prostitute. This makes you look. And, uh, and it was Walmart clothes, so it's, it's not like it was anything outrageous. But Nothing showing cleavage or... Yeah, shorts were too short, you know, kind of thing. One was a skirt, and uh, I don't remember what color it was, but it was an inappropriate color. Just things, just things like that. Mm. So it progressed, the physical progressed, but also the control. Um, in 1998, my son was born. Um, and let me back up from there. We moved from Beaufort, South Carolina, which is where he lived, to uh, Wilmington Island, uh, Georgia. The plan was to go, um, he had a sailboat, so we were going to sail around, maybe go to the Bahamas. And we made it as far as Savannah, and I found out I was pregnant. So when we first got to Savannah, I had a job, I think it was my second job ever, and there was an older lady that worked there, and she could tell that something wasn't right. Um, The control was very much in effect by that time. Uh, and this was a new place. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. I was the only one with a driver's license. He didn't have one. So we always went places together. And she asked me one time to go out to the movies. And I said, you know, let me ask my husband. And she gave me the craziest look. And I realized, like, maybe everyone does not ask permission before they. So um, he, of course, said no. So then I had to go tell her, no, you know, he said I couldn't go. And she didn't say anything. And a couple of times she hinted around, hey, if you ever need some help, I can help you. Or if you decide that you don't want to be married, I can, I can help you. So it planted a seed. I can't remember her name, but I can see her face in my head. And, uh, and I'll never forget that because she wasn't pushy with it. But she planted that first seed that, you know, this doesn't have to be like this. Um, we were still on Wilmington Island uh, in, in a little small 24-foot sailboat, I mean, tiny. And um, I decided I was going to leave him. And he would go, uh, he, when he drank, he would drink about a quart of vodka and at least a 12-pack of uh, Miller's Best a day. 
So sometimes he wouldn't drink, and he would be on the wagon, and he would go three or four or five months. And so in Wilmington Island, he was not drinking, and, and the abuse was still just as bad. Uh, one thing that happened is we were going into this restaurant where I was working at, and he was upset about something, and I don't remember what, but he caught my heel. I had flip-flops on, and he caught my heel on the screen door, on that bottom point to it, and pushed it just enough to where it would cut it, but wouldn't let it go. So to this day, I have a scar about three-quarters of an inch long where uh, it's that door sliced my heel, and I couldn't say anything about it. So that was at the time that I said, you know, I wanted to leave. And um, he started crying, and he said, I have never done anything to you unless you deserved it. He never said, I'm sorry for this. He said, I would never do it unless you deserved it. And did you think you deserved it? I did, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. I thought, he's only doing this to help me be a better wife. Many victims, especially young ones, accept the abuse as a normal part of life, but it is not. Stand by for the conclusion of Sincere Voices of Victims, a groundbreaking podcast hosted by Wolf FM News Director and Alabama Broadcasters Association Hall of Famer, Deborah Pearson. So did he put the knife to your neck or... He had it right in front of my face. A podcast giving voice to those impacted by senseless violence in the wiregrass. My son had to drive here. I hit the left eye. But you can't touch him because his body is not evidence. Um, this sounds terrible. But if I tell my story, I have to tell the whole truth of it. Their stories often go untold until now. Um, But he died that night. Each episode showcases riveting, in-depth interviews with survivors, offering profound insights into their struggles and their extraordinary journeys towards healing. Don't miss out on the next episode of Voices of Victims. Share this podcast and subscribe now. Available on all major podcast platforms and at 997wolffm.com. Now the conclusion of the Janice Wells story, Relieving the Past. You know, I was young. I was so much younger than him, and he was just helping me be a good wife. So that was at the time that I said, you know, I wanted to leave. And um, he started crying, and he said, I have never done anything to you unless you deserved it. He never said, I'm sorry for this. He said, I would never do it unless you deserved it. And did you think you deserved it? I did, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. I thought, he's only doing this to help me be a better wife. You know, I was young. I was so much younger than him. And he was just helping me be a good wife. So I knew, we sat there on that boat, and he cried. And like I say, he never said he was sorry. And to this day, I'm trying to think back. Maybe did I forget, but not one time did he say, you know, I'm sorry for what I did to you. But um, at any rate, he said, uh, just stay tonight. So I like uh, old country music. And um, he had some Conway Twitty and, you know, did the whole thing and uh, was very kind. And I I knew if I stayed that I wasn't going to leave. And that's exactly what happened. I spent the night. We stayed the night on the boat. And and I didn't leave. And then it was about two weeks later I found out I was pregnant with my son. Um, And then I definitely didn't want to leave. My parents were divorced. My dad raised me. And I knew that I did not want to be a divorced woman. I didn't want to raise a child, you know, like that. And and that's what he would always say after I had my son. You don't want to be like your parents. And I would think, no, I don't want to be like my parents. I'm just, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to be a better wife. Um, my son was born in 1998. Best, best thing that I've ever done in my life, you know. 
Uh, and after I had him, the whole time I was pregnant, he didn't hit me. He didn't physically abuse me at all the whole time I was pregnant. Probably within a couple of weeks of after I gave birth, the physical abuse started back. Was there mental abuse still? The whole time. The, the mental, the, um, and that became a mantra almost of, I would never hit you or I would never hurt you unless you deserved it. So it took years. I would say within the last 10 to 12 years before I really have let myself believe that I didn't deserve anything that he did. You have to unlearn the behavior. Exactly. He would also say, no one else is ever going to love you as much as I love you. And I actually caught myself years ago with my husband saying, no one else will ever love you as much as me. And as soon as I said, we were already married by that time, but as soon as I said it, all I could see was my first husband's face. And I thought, I will never speak those words again. Because it's, it may sound romantic to start with, but it's really not. Um, Basically because of the trauma that you had experienced. Right, you're probably right. You're, it's, it's what it triggered inside me. Exactly. But, but I believe that. I believe that no one else, you know, he would make me feel like he saw all the ugliness inside of me. The, the fact that, you know, I didn't come from a two-parent home or, you know, that I left home so, so early. All, all the things that you confide in another person. And he would always say, well, you know, I'm willing to overlook that, but nobody else is going to. And, and you just completely believe that. You know, after years of hearing, this is the only person, uh, you just 100% believe it. Um, I went to the hospital one time. Uh, my um, shin bone was fractured uh, from him. And so the doctor said, uh, asked to speak to me alone. And he said, no, you know, I'm, I'm her husband. And so he said, you know, you can speak to me by yourself. And I said, no, it's fine. And so with Shorty right there in the room, he said, if he abused you, I can help you. And I said, no, he, he's never abused me. And I believed that. I didn't think I was lying to the doctor. I believed that what he was doing was not abuse. He was doing what he thought what was best for us. To make you a better woman. 100%. Whew. Okay, Jen. <laughs> wow. Okay, so okay, so you're, you're on the island. You're pregnant. Um, let's fast forward a okay. little more. So, um, 1998 was when I had my son. I would say in uh, mid-99, I, I wanted to work. So, I actually um, got hired by the school system in Beaufort County, working with, uh, ironically, teenage mothers. So, I worked at the daycare there with the, with the kids at the school. Um, my son could come to work with me. And it was all older ladies that worked there, and it really opened my eyes. Um, no one ever made any indication and they knew what was going on but they would just treat me with kid gloves you know just the kindness and so looking back now I'm sure that they knew. This is the first time she's telling her story in depth since her 2004 conviction for killing the man she thought at that time was the love of her life. And so he picked up a knife and I remember seeing it so close to me and I thought he is never going to hurt me again. Um, he's not going to do this. He's, I'm not, I'm not going to allow this. I, I knew in my mind I had let him hit me for the last time. And so much of that night, the rest of the night, is a blur. It's not a, I can see certain things in my mind. I know certain things happened. But to put them in chronological order would be hard. Um, 
But I know I made up my mind right in that second. And I, and I believe it was his breaking point too. When he picked up, he's picked up a knife before. I have some scars on my arms where he's, um, I wouldn't say stabbed me, but would poke just hard enough to puncture the skin and make it bleed and leave a scar just so I would know he could. And, uh, and there was something different. The look in his eyes was different. The feeling was different. And I thought, you know, he's going to kill me. And at the same time, I thought, I'm not going to let this happen. And I fought back with everything that I had inside of me. Um, so did he put the knife to, to your neck? or He had it right in front of my face. He didn't physically touch me with it. He had it close in front of my face. And I went to grab for the knife, and we started struggling. And then that's, that's where, and then there was a whole fight with it. Um, both of us, I had some, I had some wounds on me, mostly defensive wounds, um, but he died that night. You stabbed him? He, I did. Yeah, a lot of his wounds were defensive as well. Um, not defensive, superficial, uh, meaning like less than a quarter of an inch deep, but, but I, but I did. Um, I stabbed him and with another knife or the, the same, same knife. The same knife. The same knife. Where did you stab him? Um, on the neck. He had two um, he had two stab wounds on his neck. And either one of those could have been the one that ended his life. And what did you do at that point? Nothing seemed real at that point. I left the knife, I left everything, and I got in my car and I drove to my friend's house that had my son. Um, this sounds terrible, but if I tell my story, I have to tell the whole truth of it. And so I'm just gonna, we're just gonna relive the whole thing. But um, I said, I have to leave. I have to, I've done this horrible thing. I don't know if he's okay. I didn't know if he was dead at that point. And, uh, and I didn't want it now. I mean, should I have called 911 right then? Yes, I should have, um, but I didn't. So I got in my car and instead I went to my dad's house. And this is by now midnight, probably. And uh, I banged on the door, and his wife came to the door, my stepmom. And I said, hey, I need my dad right now. And I guess I looked like I needed my daddy right then. And, and I was a daddy's girl. And so he came, and I said, hey, Shorty and I got a fight, and um, you need to call somebody. And he was like, well, let's ride over there and see. And I was like, you need to call somebody, you know. So he got in the car with me, or I got in his car, and he took me. Uh, back to Ladies Island. It's like a 15-minute ride. And when I got there, the police were there. The ambulances were there. Um, and so he had called, I guess, whoever he needed to call when he went to get his keys. Uh, and they arrested me right then. So I never... Um, so he was still alive? He was not. No. Okay, who called? I'm, so I'm confused. So when I went to my dad's house, mm -hmm. um, and I said, you know, we've gotten this fight that's, you know, we need to call someone. I'm assuming Your that dad. he called not my dad called 911 then and then got in the car and took me back to Shorty's house. Gotcha. So, um, and so when, when we got there, so the police arrested me. Um, and I remember, like I said, my dad was a retired cop from that county. So I remember him being at the outside the door of the police car. And he was like, hey, don't worry about it. He said, you just be there for a couple of hours. First thing in the morning, uh, you know, we'll get this straightened out. And, you know, we'll get you home. And, um, oof.
That's going to make me cry. So uh, the next time I saw my dad in person that I could touch him was two and a half years later. And that's when I went to court. That was the first time I got to hug him. All right. Janice was jailed for six and a half years for defending herself. She received a 15-year sentence, suspended to seven, with four years probation for voluntary manslaughter. Two and a half years later, you stayed in jail? I stayed in county jail with no bond for two and a half years until I went to court. So take me... South Carolina obviously didn't have a self-defense No, and they still don't have a self-defense law. So... Um, if you're in a domestic violence situation and you kill your abuser, even if it's self-defense, it's considered murder or at the best voluntary manslaughter. How amazing is that? I, I know that you, um, by me serving on the board, mm -hmm. I've seen you and heard you tell your story before, but I know how many victims you have helped. So what does that make you feel like today? Oh, it makes me feel incredible. Uh, the feeling I get of knowing that everything I went through is not something that I should be ashamed of and have to hide and that I can use it to help someone else makes me feel empowered in a sense that I never was before. Um, I've been out since 2007 and um, I've worked, uh, I've, been a, I've been a server for the last 15 years at IHOP in Dothan and they have been amazing and they're a great, great job and they have been very good to me. However, it is a sense of I cannot get a real job per se because I'm a convicted felon so there are so many things that I would like to do I had taken child care classes when I was younger um, I took a little bit of college for early childhood development um, but none of those things I can do as a convicted felon so to go to feeling like I'm a very good server and I love it I love interacting with people but there's not much more I can do to go from feeling like that for 10 plus years to um, when I talked to Angela Underwood and she said your story is amazing just that feeling of gosh is this not something to be ashamed of maybe I can really use this that was the first time I've ever felt that validation was from her and it's it's just taken off since then uh, it's taken me further with this than I ever thought I would go you never know who's going to hear your story. That's who has heard it. That's exactly, you're exactly right. One thing I would like to say when I spoke at the vigil last year, it was the first time I had ever spoken publicly. Um, people that were close to me knew what happened, knew what I did and why I was incarcerated, um, but not very many people. A lot of my son's friends growing up knew, hey, that his mom had been in prison. But no one really knew why, and there was a stigma definitely attached to that. So when before I spoke at the House of Ruth, before I spoke at the vigil, I asked him the same thing. I took him to the side, and I said, hey, you know, I want to know from everybody else that I have their blessing, but you were the main one. This personally affected you. You're the only one that was there with me through all this. If you don't want me to do this, tell me now. Janice's son is now 25 years old and said he is proud of his mom and her ability to move on from such a tragic event. And he said, uh, no, I want you to do it. You know, I want you to. And the night he came, he lives in Montgomery, so he came for the vigil and afterwards, and my son doesn't, he's not much of a hugger, much of a toucher, and that's from me. You know, I had a, I had a hard time those first few years when I was out. Janice is now in a lovely marriage and has added to her family with a daughter 
and she has advice we should all take heed to. But um, he hugged me and he said, I'm so proud of you. He said, he said it was amazing to hear what you say and to hear it laid out like that. He said, I'm so proud of you. And if no one else ever says anything about my story, that one sentence just healed my heart. Janice Wells has lived, learned, and now has relieved the pain of her past. For Wolf News, I'm Deborah Pearson with Sincere Voices of Victims.